So I'm going to be introing our, ser- our, our new sermon series, which is going to be seven topics, as you can see, seven mountains. But we're going to do it in about nine weeks because there's going to be an intro and an outro, if you will, like every good album, okay? There's going to be kind of an intro and an outro, but those seven weeks are going to be smashed right in the middle. And it's going to be different. It's going to be a different format, which I think is, is actually... Um, I think it's part of some of the excitement around this that we've felt at the church that I felt from text during the week is that um, apparently you don't like me talking every week. And so um, it's no, but, but we're going to have new, we're going to have a different teacher every week. And so even I was only going to teach once in nine weeks, I'm filling in tonight and then I'm going to speak again next week on our first topic, but you're going to hear from some other people. You're going to hear from some other people in the community. You're going to hear from some other people in our church, but what we're setting up to do, if you don't know, um, is that we're going to be taking a look at the seven mountains of cultural influence. And I should have the list, if I can remember it off the top of my head, I should, I can do it. Um, we're going to be taking a look at business. We're going to be taking a look at arts and entertainment. We're going to be taking a look at education. We're going to be taking a look at family, religion, politics, and media. I did it, okay? I did it. And so those, I have it on my phone back up, okay? But... <laughs> Um, those seven are going to be our seven mountains of influence. And if you think about it, as I kind of joked last week, you cannot go through life without encountering many, if not all of these. Think about it, business. Anyone here own anything in their life? Anyone own the clothes that are on their back? You've been a patron of a business. I don't know if you knew that, okay? And so you're, you either are going to come in contact with businesses or you're going to eventually work for a business, many of you. Have, if you've watched a movie, listened to a band, gone to a play, you've, you've at least experienced arts and entertainment, even if it's not a career path for you, okay? You've got, in, in America, by the way, it's illegal to not get some form of education for at least a couple of years, so you've all been in a classroom at some point um, in, in kindergarten up through grade school, maybe even into high school, okay? Um, even beyond as, as a choice. Family, we're all by... Un- for better or for worse, biologically related to someone else on this planet, okay? We know, no matter what your family looks like in its current state, we are part of families. If you've, you live in America, you're under the guise of, of politics. You, you, in, you intake media, whether you think you do or not, and on our phones, it's right there. Um, and so all these, these, these mountains of cultural influence are unavoidable, absolutely unavoidable, but many Christians try to avoid them. And that's where we start to see a lot of rub is that Christians want to, perhaps historically, for, for the millennials, I, I'm actually optimistic about your generation. For the baby boomers, I'd ask you to like hold off on all the criticism and nonsense about the millennials. Technically, I'm a millennial, so if you want to talk to anyone about it, you can take it up to with me. Okay. But I'm actually optimistic about millennials. I, I, I'm in the business world and, and I study managing millennials and taking a look at you. I'm actually way more pumped on millennials than most people, not because I'm kind of barely a part of it, but because millennials want to be a part of something that changes something. They are willing to be paid less money to work for a company that means more. They are willing to pay more for a product that has a cause attached to it. And so I'm actually hyper, hyper, hyper optimistic about the next generation. I'll push back on the baby boomers. I think y'all lost it for a long time, okay? I think y'all wanted to slide out and, and kind of kind of run Bible thumper circles and like, well, we're not, we're, we're in the world, we're not of the world, right? and we, you know, and you, you kind of took that mentality. So I'll, I'll rib back with you guys on that. I think we're kind of seeing some of the fallout as my dad, a baby boomer, would agree. 
that we've lost a lot of that in the generation, but I'm optimistic about millennials. I don't think this sermon series throws them off. I don't think it throws you off. You're like, yeah, about freaking time I heard about business at church, right? All right. Um, and so we're going to be jumping into these mountains of influence because you can't avoid them. And we don't want to be Christians that try to. We want to be Christians that stand for something in the midst of them. And so we're going to be taking a look at these seven mountains of influence. I had you open up to Matthew 5, because this is where Jesus is going to challenge us to not be like the Pharisees. You notice that Jesus was always fighting with the religious people, right? Jesus was always tussling with the religious people. It wasn't the widow, it wasn't the broken, it wasn't the hurt, it wasn't the outcast, it wasn't the poor, it wasn't the sick, it wasn't the needy. Who was he fighting with? The religiosity folks the people that came for religiosity. And he's going to explain to the disciples and he's going to explain to us that we have, and and the word Pharisee, by the way, the word Pharisee literally means separated one. Separated one. That is what Pharisee actually means. Literally means separated. And they lived a separated life. If the law said do this, they would stack three more so that you didn't even come close to breaking that law. If there, was a, if there was a leper on one street, they would go two blocks down so that they weren't even close to the dirty. Pharisee means separated one. Holy means set apart from within. Jesus is holy, but he was not a Pharisee. Jesus was perfect in every way, set apart, but he was within. I don't know if you know this, but he's not from here. And he chose to come here, to transform here. And those that reflect his image are called to do the same. And so in Matthew 5, we begin, he's going to arguably the most epic sermon ever preached. You guys know that Jesus is the greatest preacher ever. Do you know that? Okay. Greatest preacher, greatest pastor, fulfillment of everything. He's the greatest missionary, the greatest prophet. He's the greatest of all things, the greatest teacher and he's going to lay out, I believe, the, the longest sermon fragment that we have recorded word for word. And it says this in Matthew 5. He says, In seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. I always joke, like, Jesus clearly worked on cardio, okay? Like, could just, like, scamper up a mountain for a Bible study, okay? He's like, hey, we're going to do a Bible study tonight. Let's go to Boney. Let's go. And he just walked. And he just went up, Stairmaster type stuff. Some of you don't like the joke. We'll move on. And it says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. They were probably a little farther behind him. They weren't working on the Stairmaster stuff. And he says, then he opened his mouth and taught them saying, now we're going to get into this, but I want to see what he does. Before the challenge, before the call, he sets a perspective and an expectation. This is why you don't get to come into this thinking, all right, teach me how to just be on fire in the business and the arts. I'm going to go tell people the truth. I'm going to tell them what's wrong with the world. And he says, here's your expectation from what I'm about to call you to do. Here's the expectation. Here's the Beatitudes. Here's your attitude that you take going into what he's going to call us into. He says, here's, here's your attitude. It's not one of, of thumping and pride and ego. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And this doesn't mean mopey. This means the people that realize they are spiritually empty. That we don't tap a power source from within ourselves because we are tapped out. 
that are poor in spirit. We are then filled from an external source of power. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's how he kicks it off. This is, again, I wanna, I wanna show you that this is the humbling perspective and the expectation that we have going into this calling that I'll show you in verse 13. He says, blessed, again, verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's no pride, there's no ego, there's reliance. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. We don't blaze past the misery of this world, we mourn it. For they shall be comforted. It says, blessed are the meek. Now you should know that meek doesn't mean weak. Meek is actually strength under power. The, the, the original word is like a bit in a horse's mouth. Anyone been on a horse? You have that feeling, you're like, I'm not as like big as I thought I was. Like this beast could just do whatever he wants right now, right? Anyone been on a horse that sort of started to kind of get away from you, right? Sheer terror. Like I've had that, it was worse than skydiving. Like it was just, I'm dead, great. Four feet, I'm gonna die. This beast does whatever it's want. But, it's, but, but that bit provides control, strength under control. So it doesn't mean that you're weak. The guy's are like, oh, the, I have to be weak the rest of my life to be a Christian. Are you kidding me? Have you looked at Jesus? He wasn't weak. He was God. That was power under control. So he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They crave it. We want it. We accept it. For they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful. Many of us struggle with mercy. We want grace for ourselves, but no mercy for anyone else. We want mercy for ourselves, but not mercy for others. And mercy is not getting what you deserve. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Not because you're a jerk. The Bible says you deserve that. It does, I've taught on it. It says, there's jerks out there. You guys deserve what you get. But it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you. Why? Because you were a jerk? No, for my sake. When you're in him, they will hate you. But you will still be blessed because you're in him. And so he says, rejoice. I love that. Like, yay, persecution, right? See, you guys didn't even laugh at that. You're like, no, no, not yay, no. It's terrible. We don't even have it that bad in America. We don't. I've told you this. I've been to Rome. I've been to the catacombs underground where the church met in cavities beneath the earth. They lined their hallway with dead bodies, scraped the little fish symbol, the ichthus, into the wall. We put it on our SUV like we're a martyr, right? I've, that's, that's persecution. We're, we're getting there. We're not there, but we're getting there. I can tell you it'll get worse. I can almost promise you that. Jesus himself promises you that. says it's a sign that you're saved. And then he says, rejoice. Even amidst this persecution, he says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. He says, it's not about the circumstances. It's about your eternal trajectory. 
It's not about what you're going through. It's about where you're going to. I should write that down. That rhymed. It's not about where you're going, what you're going through. It's about where you're going to. He says, great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so he set this, this expectation. And expectations can be really good and really bad. Because if you have the wrong expectations, they can burn you. And he says, I'm not going to call you into something without you understanding what you're going to face. And, and the mentality that you have, it's a, it's a humble, it's not a prideful entrance into what I'm going to call you into. It's, it's humbled, it's, it's poor in spirit, it's, it's mournful, it's meek. It's a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. It's, it's merciful and pure in heart and, and seeking peace, understanding there will be persecution, but for his namesake. And then he says this in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Notice Jesus does not say, you can be the salt of the earth. I love when he does this. He doesn't say, look, you could be the salt and then list how you could do that, right? That's what we want. We're like, where's the list? I need the list. Show me. I'll see if I can do it. He doesn't say you can be. He says you are. The question is, are you faithful in this calling? It's not whether or not you're salt. Jesus says you are. The question for us today is, are we being faithful to that calling? wherever we are, in life stage, career, culture, in our faith, are we willing to be salt? Because he says, you are the salt of the earth. It's as if God sprinkled Christians on this planet. Anyone salted steak before? That's the image I want in your head right now. Or if you're vegetarian, like broccoli or something, okay? Right, like maybe garlic salt or something. But the fact that there is, this, there is this chunk of physical matter and that we are called by God to be salt on the earth. Again, not saying you can be. Figure it out, get your ducks in a row, do the right things, go to church. Then maybe you can be. He says you are. And it's this idea that we go into every vestige, we go into every culture, we go into every vestige of society and I would say that, that we, we accomplish two things because salt accomplished two major things in the ancient framework. This is before refrigeration, okay? I would submit to you that, that salt had two major purposes that when the disciples heard this, they were like, oh, see, we're, we're like, salt's just like a fun to have for us, right? This was a dire necessity to them. This is pre-refrigeration, okay? So I would say the two things that it accomplished in a major sense is both as preservative and payment. I'll explain payment. So b even before we're like, man, food's all right. We just throw some salt on it. There, there, I've, I've, I've studied that too. Like there is a flavor, there is a fun, there is a creativity that salt brings, which I love. And maybe I'll, I'll be bringing that next week. Um, the, the creative side of salt, that it's things just like taste better and just pop and just everyone's like, yes, when you eat something with salt, right? But, but the, the, the preservative side of it, 
which is boring for us. We're like, eh, just throw it in the fridge. This was, this was of dire necessity then. This helped preserve food. And food what? Food brings life. Does it not? This preserved food that preserved life. And so as preservative, salt was not a nice to have. It was an essential and expensive commodity. And so it acts as this preservative that goes in and, and, and slows, if not stops, decay of the food. It slowed, if not stopped, the decay, the degradation of food so that life could be sustained. And so salt was first a preservative and it was also a payment. Here's a fun little study for you. The word salary, everyone heard of salary, right? Everyone on board with that? Salary comes from the Latin word salarium, which has its root in sal or salt. In ancient Rome, salarium, the salary, was specifically meant for an amount of money given to a Roman soldier allocated for the purchase of salt. Salt was part of the cultural currency. Salt was not just about preserving, it was about paying. It was not just about slowing or stopping decay. It was about the transfer of goods. It was used as payment. Like when the soldiers would get that, it was, it was life, it was sustainment. It was, it was more weeks and months with, with food preserved that they could feed their family with. And it was this currency then that was exchanged for good work. It was, it was what the, the culture, it was what that specifically the Roman soldiers would receive from the authorities as payment. And so it was both preservative and payment. And so he says, you are the salt of the earth. And so he, he calls us into this preservative mentality that we are, we are called into these different vestiges that, that salt goes through the entirety of that, that physical matter that it's poured upon and that it, it slows, if not stops the decay. Look, we all know where the world is headed, do we not? I don't know if you know this, but we know how it ends, okay? So are, are we going to reverse it back to perfection? No, but we are gonna slow the decay. We are gonna stop some of the decay, but don't worry, the world will get what it ultimately wants, which is life apart from Jesus. But Christians are called to preserve, to 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 restore, to, to, to hold off the decay wherever we are planted in any industry, in any career, apart from a career that's just bona fide sinful, sinful obviously. No, you can't do, sorry, I'm really young here. No, you can't do Christian porn, okay? You can't. You can't go into there and say, well, we're just gonna do the Christian side. It's not, They're, apart from blatantly sinful occupations, no matter where you are, that's why Martin Luther, the great theologian that, that, that penned the, the, the founding document of the Protestant Reformation was so big on vocation. So they struggled with this back in the 1500s too. People are like, well, there's religious stuff and then there's like everything else. And he says, nah, wherever you are, you're called to be salt. That we preserve, that we are part of the moral preservative in society. And then this idea of payment, that there's an exchange for something, that we have a gift for society. And we're gonna talk about that. So he says, you are the salt of the earth. 
before we even get into these, I, I, I simply need you to accept that you are something tonight. And whether or not you're being faithful to Jesus' call to transform the world now while he's gone until he returns. And so we are the preservative. We do have an exchange of goods for the world. So it says, you are the salt of the light, or, uh, of, the, of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing. Now keep in mind, he just said, you are salt, right? He continues analogy. And then he says, look, if it loses its flavor, it's worth nothing. That's tough words. Some of you think Jesus never said anything harsh. You haven't studied his words. He says, you're salt. And if salt loses its potency, just throw it out. We don't need it. It's, he says like this, he says, it's good for nothing. Oh, hold on, oh, hold on. Argue with Jesus, not me. He says, you are the salt. And if you lose your flavor, you're good for nothing. From the world's perspective, has he still saved you? Does he still love you? Does he still call you? Yes, but what he's, what he's encouraging you to do is he says, look, if the salt's lost its flavor, if it's lost its potency, it's of no good to the meat anymore. And we've been sprinkled on earth for a, a greater calling than to simply look back on the cross and wait for him to return. Now, the whole thing should have ended when he said it's finished, right? If I'm at the cross of Jesus, he's like, it's finished. I would have been like, oh man, shoot. You're like, how long is he gonna stay under there? Okay. He said, it's finished. Should not the whole thing have ended? Why do we gotta go to work tomorrow? Why is it two th- roughly 2017 years later? He's patient and he has a plan. He has a calling now. And so he says, look, it's good for nothing at that point, but to be thrown out. And I love this. He says, and trampled underfoot by men. He doesn't say, look, God discards you, but he says, look, men will. You'll just be trampled underfoot. If, if you're not preserving where you're called to be, if you're not in an exchange, and again, I'll, I'll parse out what this exchange looks like for us in a minute. But he says, look, the world will have nothing to do with you. It's just gonna blow right by you. You're not gonna affect change. I think we want change because Christians, we, we want things to change, but we've been made to believe that we're not a part of it. And that's the entire game plan. It's called Reconciliation between the redemption and the consummation is this vague chapter in in the Christian worldview. It's like, well, the cross was a couple thousand years ago and Jesus hasn't returned. So I guess I just have to make a paycheck and pay my bills and die. And he says, no, you're here. And Paul talks about that we've been given a ministry of reconciliation. That just as Jesus is reconciling all things to himself, so too are we called to then reconcile the portion of his creation that we've been given. We're to reconcile all things to him. I'm called to reconcile what it means to be a business owner as a, as a director of marketing. To not simply say, well, I have to go do marketing the way the world does marketing until Jesus gets back. That I'm to reconcile that to Jesus, to my faith, showing the world that Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. He says, but look, if, 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 you're, not, if you're not part of the solution, you'll be trampled underfoot by men. Right? If, if we're not providing that healthy counterculture to the world, it's just gonna, it's gonna get even faster on its path to destruction. And so we preserve. And look, by, if you know me, I'm not talking about like, man, we just hold to like 1953 when everything was awesome. But baby boomers, stop it. No, okay, like it wasn't, okay? It was off the charts depraved. It has been depraved since we were created, right? So we're not like trying to hold, oh, if we just hold on to the 50s, stop. I've seen Mad Men, okay, right? <laughs> 
okay? It wasn't great. But what we're saying is that we're, we're holding to these truths. We're holding to the person and the work of Jesus. We're not holding to an era. We're not holding to the old days. We're not holding that. So we can be entirely progressive and yet still preserving. We can be progressive, I mean, by moving forward, yeah? Because we are. Because stop, like, seriously, Christian, stop thinking your whole faith was 2000, ended 2017 years ago. And that was the end of the story. It's not. We're headed forward to the return of Jesus, and there's implications as we go. So we're not holding to a time period, you know, but we're preserving the truth, which is, as you're going to see, that is our currency. So he says, look, you're going to be trampled underfoot by men. If you lose sight of this calling on your life, that you are salt, you are a preservative, you have a currency in this culture, and you're being called to use it wherever you are, in any one of these mountains, you're going to be trampled underfoot. Christians are like, oh, they don't hear us. We're not talking. We're not next to them. We're not with them. We don't go into the dark places. We say, oh, I'm just telling you, Jesus was at the parties. He was in dark places. Was he sinning? No. But was he there? Yeah. Was he holy, set apart from within? Yeah. Was he separated? No. He calls us into those dark places. He calls us into these mountains, as we're going to see. He calls you into your career path. So you don't have to be afraid of like, man, if I go into, if I go into movies, man, it's going to be so weird with my faith. Go into movies and take your faith. Go into business and take your faith. Because he says this, he says, you are the light of the world. He says, you are the salt. And he says, you are the light of the world. Again, it's not if, you can be, if you do certain things. He says, you are. Question is, are you being faithful to the calling? In college, in marriage, in friendship, in your career. And light does tons of things, does it not? We could go into it. In fact, I used to lift weights with a guy who goes to our church, Jeff, who is a uh, infrared physicist. That dude, just it was 6 a.m. at the gym, and he's like talking like algorithm, like he's just. And I'm like, dude, I just want to like lift something heavy and put it back down, okay? And he's like talking about light and how you can actually like understand more about God because he constantly describes himself as light. And some of you are like, give me an example. I don't even know what he was talking about. I can't give you an example. I don't remember the words he was using. There are way too many syllables, right? But he's just talking about the refraction and the light and then the, the energy of this and that. He's like, and it's just God's built his nature, this all sort of stuff, right? It's absolutely amazing. But I do know a couple things about light as a layman. I know that it enables vision, does it not? I know that what we see is the result of light being reflected off something. Like who remembers that day? I think it was like sixth grade for me when your teacher was like, did you know that there's no color without light? And I'm like, that is absolute horse crap. That chair is blue in the dark and it's blue in the light. I don't care what you say. Sixth grade, like I, I think I left that day. I was like, nope. Mom, we got to do private school. This is ridiculous, right? So that, that is the subject of light. That, that, that color only exists when light is shown on it. I didn't, some of you still don't believe me, right? It's true. It's the result of light being shown on it. And so it enables vision, right? We can all agree that. Like if we just shut the lights off, we would just be distraught for a little bit. It enables vision, but it also enables the clarity and the color and the creativity of that which is being shown on. So it says, you are the light, now, some of you are confused. 
Jesus began, oh, and I have this. I know that it turns dark spaces into beautiful places. Yeah? Has anyone ever, everyone go to like a dark warehouse in DTLA? People are like, no, of course not. <laughs> what kind of dumb question is that? I have. I've had to scout locations for photo shoots and stuff for my, for my you know, day job and my, my side entrepreneurial stuff. You go into some of those warehouses and they are the creepiest thing on the planet. And then you come in the next day when light is hitting it right through all the broken glasses and it's, you're like, photo shoot, yes, Instagram, right? You're like, this is where it's happening, it's beautiful. And you were peeing your pants the night before when you're in the exact same spot. You're like, I think it's haunted, right? It's a, it's a, it's a dark place and light comes and becomes a beautiful space. One of my favorite metal bands for today, some of you heard this last week, we were talking about metal bands, it's becoming a theme, I know. But the lead singer of a band that just retired for today came out with a, um, a book called um, Beautiful Things in Ugly Places. And he talks about how he goes in with the gospel on secular tours into the secular scene, into these dark clubs that when you see them on sunset, you're like, oh, heathens. And they tour with secular bands that wear upside down crosses and I texted with one, another one of my favorite metal bands today, Wolves at the Gate. They just announced that they're coming to LA. I'm so pumped. They're going to play the Roxy with a bunch of secular bands and I'm gonna go and I'm gonna nerd out, okay? And I'm just gonna be there and they're gonna take the gospel into a dark place and turn it into a beautiful space. I've seen it and they get heckled. Oh, we didn't come to, we came to a, a metal concert, not a church service. And Steve, the guitar player, or Nick, the vocalist, they carry on. And they, they sacrifice five, 10 minutes from their set. Why? To turn a light on in the dark room. And their lyrics are amazing. I read some lyrics last week from one of my bands. I mean, people are like, that sounds like a worship song. No, it's a metal and he's screaming and it's crazy and it sounds dark and it's not, it's beautiful. But they're taking a beautiful message into a dark place. And so light enables vision and it turns dark spaces into beautiful places. And when Jesus began his ministry, before he spoke his first words, after receiving the Holy Spirit, it says that he fulfilled the prophet Isaiah in this sense. In Matthew four sixteen. it says, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, light has dawned. John eight twelve, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. I am the light of the world. So he says, I hold it. I am the light. We got that? We agree. Jesus holds the light to the world. He's the reason by which we can see. He's the reason by which dark places become beautiful, beautiful spaces. He's the reason we see color and creativity. And he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so he passes it to us. In Genesis 1, when they create humans, it's known as the Imago Dei in his image and likeness. It's the Imago Dei. It's in the image of God. The very first humans could not escape this call on their life that they, as God above shines down on his people, that they are called to be a reflection to a broken and dying world of his character, his nature, his love, his grace. And so as he shines down, we push out and we're broken and fractured and the light goes like this when it hits us. But as he shines down, we push into this world and we reflect his nature and his character to a lost and broken world. Jesus says, I am the light and I'm gonna give it to you. And so he quite literally says, 
you will have the light of the life. And so then he says, you are the light of the world. Now, why are you the light of the world? Because you're awesome? No, you know that. I know that. I woke up this morning. It's like, still not awesome. Dang it. But he says that you will then have that light which comes from him. The question is, what are you going to do with it? And he says, you're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. He says, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. Who, who sung that? Who, who was the, the Sunday school nerd right, growing up? This little light of mine. Come on. You're freaking out right now. You're having like PTSD. You're like, don't, make, don't take me back. Don't take me back. <laughs> I'm going to let it shine, right? Hundred under a bush, bushel. No, I don't know why I said bushel. Why can't we just use baskets? Christians are weird, right? Right? <laughs> Hide it under a, a basket? What? No, right? And all the kids freak out. No. And then later in life, we're like, yeah, but... I'm at work. I do movies. I'm in business. It's a secular business. We just sell things. It's Sunday. Sunday. Oh, hey, Jesus, Monday morning. Not so much. Emails. Right? You're a city on a hill. Do you light a lamp and, and cover it? Put it under a basket? No, but you put it up on a lampstand. And it gives light to all those who are in the house. It gives them vision. Dark places become beautiful spaces when you turn lights on. And so the question is, is Jesus the light or are we the light? Answer is yes. Why? Because of him. How? Because he gave it to us. For what purpose? To reflect his character and nature now in the Imago Dei. And so he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It says this, verse 16, it says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship created in Jesus for what? Religiosity? Doctrine study? It says, for good works. Sounds legalistic. Take it up with Jesus. Created for good works. We are his workmanship. Created in Jesus, that's the key, for good works. That's the outcome which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are salt. You are light. The question is, are you walking in that reality? So he says, you are. And we've been created for good works that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Isaiah 43, 7 says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. You can go to college, spend $200,000 on a philosophy degree and never answer the question, what is your purpose in life? I will tell you it's to glorify Jesus right now. Money saved. Get a new major. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Just poor philosophy majors. My wife minor in philosophy, my dad minor. I, I love philosophy, right? Okay. That's all I'm gonna say on that because I could keep going. But in the beginning, God created. Colossians 1.16 said Jesus did all the creating. Jesus personally pieced you together. In your mother's womb, he fashioned you together. Jesus did the creating. And it says that he created us for good works that we would walk in them, that we would glorify him in the process. Jesus, who knew all this, who was a part of all this, repeats it in this sermon. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Why? So that you get lifted up? 
that they may glorify your Father in heaven. I'm telling you, and to the, to, to the college students, to the baby boomers, I don't care how old you are, is one of the most profound things that I can tell you in terms of your career. You would not believe the ministry that you will have when you are simply excellent at what you do. I don't have to proselytize about Jesus. Opportunities arise from my work. Have I always been right? No, of course not. But have I seen it that when I'm excellent in my job, people count on me more, they rely on me more, they're, they're curious about where my steadfastness comes from or some of, my, my, some of, the, some of the, the turmoil that arises in, in a workplace, why for the most part I can be um, unfazed by them. I've had that. I had someone write me and just kind of like, why are you, everything's kind of chaotic right now in the department? What's your piece? All sorts of, and I made a joke, said, well, I was in the Marine Corps, so no one shot at me today, so that's a good thing, right? And so I remember those days, like nothing blew up. So it's kind of like not Thousand Oaks, not a big deal, relax. But also I've, 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 got, a, I've got a faith that, that supports me. But if you're just shabby at your job, no one cares. You're tra- trampled underfoot by men. It's plain and simple. You want to have a ministry happen without even having to talk about Jesus? Show his creativity and his work ethic and his workmanship in your work. And I'm telling you, those ministry opportunities will arise. Be amazing at what you do. Not for your glory, so that they may see your father in heaven and glorify him. They're like, that's someone that actually is living out something that they tell me they believe. The world will always tell you what they believe. Everyone has a blog now. But to see people living that out, you're like, hmm, might be real for that one. Might be real for that guy. Times and trials and work and Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and Friday, regardless of the mountain you're in, when they see you living that, I'm telling you, it has a profound impact. But Christians don't get to be like, oh, saved by grace, and I get to be terrible at my job. It's not there. Jesus wasn't terrible at his job. We'll talk about this next week. Jesus had a business for 18 years. Some of you didn't know that. Where's that? It doesn't say anything about that, I know. Because he got up every morning and just went to work. There was nothing to write about. He taught for three years before they killed him. That's it. What did he do for 18 years from about 12 to 30? What did he do? Helped his dad run a business. Mark 7, 37 says that Jesus did all things well. When they saw him, they're like, that's the son of the carpenter. Why? Because he probably did their porch. There was no Instagram. How did people find out about good business? Like, hey, solid porch. Good stuff. It's like, homie Jesus down the street made it. Some of you are like, don't call him homie. He's fine with it. I checked. It was word of mouth. They're like, he's really good at his job. Jesus showed up. He's not like scraping an ichthus, like, yo, I'm a Christian. Check out my business card. Right? He was Jewish. He came in. They're like, wow, Jesus is really good at his job. 18 years. They didn't write about it. Why? Nothing really to write about. He got up in the morning, went to the bathroom. So when you forget that, it's not in the Bible. (laughs) Sat down for breakfast, talked about probably resource allocation with his dad. They broke rocks for a living. They they weren't like wood carpenters, really. It was all stone back then, right? Dad's like, yo, Jesus, got to go pick up those rocks. I knew it, right? And he went and he got them. I've often told you about this. I, I wonder if the Pharisees pass by him while he's working on someone's house and like, poor people working and it's God for 18 years. Look at the, look at, look at the poor peasant kid <laughs> building another porch. That's God working on his knees, dirty, calloused hands. The guys walk by in their man robes, totally clean. And Jesus is grinding, working. 
He was excellent at his job. It's a profound ministry, a ministry of observation. I learned from our senior pastor, Rob, a ministry of observation. You will minister to people when you don't even know they're watching by being excellent at your job. And so we get into this idea of, of currency. You heard me say that, and so I want to expound on that real quick. This is what it comes down to. We are not only a preservative, but we also have a currency that we give to culture in response to situations. So we have a preservative, we have a currency, we have a light. What is that? All of it boils down to one thing. Rob believes this. I believe this. Pastor Brett believes this. The leadership believes this. And I'll give you an illustration that it's even outside of this, this context. I, I, I asked my dad. I was getting ready to get another tattoo. And uh, don't freak out. Okay, so Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus. You're welcome. And so, and so um, check this out. So I, I asked him, I said, look, I want to get a word written on the inside of my arm in Hebrew. Dad, my dad, pastor of 40 years, recently retired, still serving and loving the church. And I was going to get the word faith written. Okay. And I said, Dad, going in, going to get another tattoo. I just want to know if you had to boil Christianity down to one word. And I had an answer, right? I was already doing that whole thing. Right? Parents know this. Kids are like, what are you talking about? All right, so we've, we've got our answer, and I wanted to lead him toward it. So if you boiled it down to one word, what would it be? And then I give it to him. You know, would it be faith? And he goes, nah. I'm like, thank goodness I checked with him before the ink, right? Really? He goes, nope. He goes, everyone has faith. Everyone's got faith in something. He goes, the core of Christianity is truth. And so I have truth written on the inside of my arm. He said, the core, the core offering that we have is truth. Everyone has beliefs. And by the way, no, all the major religions do not teach generally the same thing. Here's how you, I know you've heard that in class. Here's how you counteract that. Then why do they all say different things? It's very simple. I know. It's amazing that you missed it, doctor. All right? <laughs> If they all believe different things about how you get to heaven, they clearly don't teach the same things, okay? I, I went through college the same. I went to a Lutheran college where I had to fight this battle, okay? Right? Aaron knows. Look at you back there in your purple sweatshirt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I haven't kicked you out yet for being Christian, but we'll figure it out, right? And so at the, ver at the very core of what Christianity has is truth. Truth. Now, look, are, do other people say they have truth? Do other religions believe they have truth? Absolutely. We have Jesus who said, I am the truth. We don't worship ideas or doctrines or people, persons or places or things. We worship a God who says, I am truth. And so we, we preserve, we are salt and light by preserving with this currency in the culture that is truth. That is truth. Truth preserves, truth is our gift, and truth shines light in dark places. Jesus says, I am the way. You've heard this, but let it sink in tonight. John 14, 6, I am the way, not a way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. At the core of everything, our similarities and our differences with all people across all nations, across all religions, at the very core of what we cling to is that Jesus is the truth. That is how we, when we stay close to that, that is how we begin. We are tethered to that. We begin to go into different areas in culture, 
tethered to the truth. And as long as we stay tethered, we will have the backing of truth. And we have to stay tethered. Jesus, before being betrayed, which kicked off the crucifixion process, went away and prayed. He prayed for himself, he prayed for his disciples, and he prayed for all believers. And he said this, as he was praying specifically for his disciples, and if you are a Christian, you declare yourself to be a disciple of, not me, not Pastor Rob, not Pastor Brett, not Pastor John, though a lot of people worship the worship leaders, okay? We, we, stay, we stay under the feet of Jesus, our ultimate high priest, our ultimate senior pastor. So if you, you declare yourself to be a Christian, you are a disciple. You say, oh, that's what it was a historical context. He's just praying for them, right? And he says this, he says, I pray for them. I wanna read a lot of this because I, I love listening to Jesus talk to his dad. He says, I pray for them talking about his disciples, those who declare themselves to be Christians. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world. Jesus was already gone. This was it. Betrayal is literally the next chapter. He says, I'm being removed. And he ultimately goes on before the rest of the resurrection to say, it's better that I go. Because I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit and you guys are gonna do greater things than I. Remember I asked that a couple weeks back. I'm like, who thinks they can do better things than Jesus? Everyone's like, I've tried walking on water, it didn't work, right? But Jesus himself says, you're gonna do greater things because I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit. So he says, I am no longer in the world, but these, us, are in the world. We're still here, aren't we? Right? And you've heard this. I think it was Billy Graham that coined it, in the world, but not of the world. I think that was a big, big uh, sermon that he gave one time, in the world, but not of the world. He says, you're still here. Don't you feel like that? You're sort of like, okay, Jesus, like, why are we, what are we doing? He says, you're still here. He knows. He's leaving. We're still here. But these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name, those whom you have given me, that they may become one as we are. And that's eternal community in heaven with God. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. That's the Antichrist. That the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. Jesus came as the word and in the fulfillment of the word. And so we're tethered to this. If if you're not tethered to this as the truth, look, there's prayer, there's community, there's other ways that you can certainly hear from and be influenced by God. But Jesus says, I gave them this. There's your tether. There's your anchor. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Did he say we're in the world? Yeah, he said you're still here. I don't know if you know that. If you have questions about that, let me know. You're still here. Everyone agree you're here right now. I've been to a church of Scientology service. I know what that, that question can frustrate. And st- put your hands on your knees. Let your knees feel your hands. Let your hands feel your knees. Are you in here? Find like. People try to outthink this. You're here, yeah? Jesus says, you're here. He says, but you're not of here. 
set apart from within, but not separated. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. His prayer for us is not that, hey, get them out so it's easy. He said they're here, but protect them while they're here. He says this, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. What is truth, philosophers say? Simple. What God says to be real. Truth is defined as God's perspective on reality. God's perspective of reality is truth. And no, it can't be relative. Someone says truth is relative. They've just contradicted themselves. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world. So some of you want an example. All right, we're going to get into the seven mountains. Okay, so what does that look like? Study Jesus, who went into culture, who went into a world to transform it from within. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Not into church cliques, not into religiosity, not into Sunday mornings. He says, I've sent you into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they may also also be sanctified by the truth. Jesus builds the case, I would argue, that at the core of those who he sends out into the world is this pillar of truth. We have that. We rest in that. We can be bold because of it. We can be humbled because of it. We hold the truth. That is a powerful thing, not to be yielded over people's heads, but to be gifted, to be given as preservative, as salt, as light to a culture that's growing dark. And Jesus says, I'm going to send you out with the light. You are the light and you'll be tethered with truth. And that's our gift for them. It's not something we lord over them. It's something that we love them with is the truth. And so we're going to be going into these seven mountains of influence. And what you're going to see over the next weeks is different speakers coming in in various formats, in various styles, in various passages, in various topics. And the challenge on all the teachers, all of us, is going to be to discuss, again, in in our own way, just as God used the humanity of the authors of the Bible to write very different ways about core truths and tenets. He's going to use, I I, I believe, I pray, different speakers with different stories and different life experiences and different passages that speak to them in different cultures where they are. And all the the, the guest speakers are going to be involved in this mountain, this, this vertical, if you will. Again, an example, I'm in the business world. I'm not on staff here. And, and I tell the guys that I don't bring that up. I tell the leadership, I don't bring that up to be like, oh, I'm not on trip. I'm not one of those guys. Like, yo, we're cool. Like, I'm not one of them, right? I, I say that because I, I want to remind you that when I, when I say this, I have to wake up tomorrow and go to a secular job and, and live what I preach as well. And they do too. They'll tell you, like being on church staff isn't like, oh man, if I could just work with a bunch of Christians, you, that has its own set of crazy, okay? <laughs> right? 
They'll tell you that. This has got its own center. I just go and I just run my number. I run my division of the business to the numbers. And if numbers are good, I'm good, right? They have a whole other world on, on a church staff. So I don't say that in any way. I just want to remind you that, that I'm in the business world. I have, you know, some business ventures on the side, entrepreneurial stuff on the side. And I have a passion for business. Um, Rob has called me into his, his office before, like, hey, what's it going to take to get you on staff? And I said, Rob, I'm not called on staff. I, 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 I don't know where my ministry will go, but I know this for certain. I am to be in business now. Maybe not forever, but definitely now. I have a passion for it. And so I don't get to shelve my faith at the door on Sunday nights and leave and go back to the secular workplace where I can be a different person. We have to take these truths and we bring them into those mountains. Then the week after that, I think Brad Cummings, the producer of The Shack, is coming, right? And by the way, if you like the movie, were okay with it or didn't like it, come, right? You've got to hear Brad's perspective. If you didn't hear it this morning, you've got to hear Brad's perspective. Don't get all Pharisee. Oh, there's, some of the stuff is wrong. Well, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, of course. It's, it's, it's a creative work. Like, I don't, I don't read metal band lyrics like that's the Bible, right? Do they get it wrong sometimes? Yeah. Do worship songs get it wrong sometimes? Like, yeah, of course. I give my all. No, you don't. Stop singing that. You don't give your all. That's not theologically. The Bible says I can't give my, I know, just relax, okay? Then we're going to have education. We're going to have Keith Jones, who's one of our elders, who's uh, a teacher in the Canal Valley School District, tenured. Um, he's got a crazy story about how, can I give away a little bit of it? Would, wouldn't, be a, wouldn't be a part of the union, right? Wouldn't be a part of the union. This year, stepped into the union. All oh, Christians, oh, oh, they support abortion, you Democrat, the liberal, and Keith finally went over here and was like, all right, I'll go in and see. And now they're listening. We're going to have Brett talk about family because he has one of those, right? <laughs> we're going to go through these topics. And, and by the way, we're all, some of these guest speakers are also going to be able to bring in guest speakers. So it's like compounding guest speakers. It's going to be amazing. So next week, my CEO of, of my, my day job, don't call, him, don't call it that next week, by the way, too. Be like, oh, so you're the day job guy, right? Just, okay. But my, my CEO is going to be here. Um, and I'm going to, so after I teach on business for 40 minutes or so, I'm going to bring him up. And he happens to be a Christian. Maybe not all the guest speakers of the guest speakers will be Christian. We don't know how some of it's going to work itself out. He is a Christian. He's an elder, father of five, been a businessman, entrepreneur um, his whole life. I'm going to bring him up. We're going to talk about how that's played a role in what he does. Because what he's done is, is I mean, he employs me. I think I'm cool. And like, I'm, he employs me, right? Like, I'm like, I'm pretty good at business. Yeah, the guy that owns you is pretty good at business, right? Like, the one that pays you is the one that's pretty good at what he does. And so we're going to have back and forth. There's going to be, again, a teaching. There's going to be some guest Q&A that you, you're going to have a number on the screen. You guys can text in questions during, like, he makes a point. You're like, wait a minute. Oh. So next week from now on, like, you're allowed to be on your phones, Okay. But then we're going to start watching what you're doing on your phones. But we'll figure out. And so, um, so we're going to endeavor to show, again, maybe the maybe how they phrase it won't be that, but but how that salt, how that light plays out in these major mountains of cultural influence. Does that make sense? And again, the example is this: it's not like, hey, look at us, we're doing this. It's hey, look at Jesus, he did it. Who's the greatest missionary to ever walk this planet? Jesus. Why? Because he came from one culture and went to another. Who's the greatest pastor? Jesus. Who's the greatest preacher? Jesus. Who's the greatest everything? Jesus. And so with our eyes set on him, we go into culture. Why? Because Jesus went into culture. 
He was set apart from within it, but he didn't separate himself from it. And so we're gonna take a look at these, these seven mountains. And this is really, this really is the unlimited gospel. This is the unlimited gospel. Christians for too long in this country have limited the gospel. We have to stop. This is not, I'm not, we will not, God speak will not preach a limited gospel that doesn't go into certain places. Why? Because Jesus went into every place. And so as we go through these topics, we're gonna see how salt and light plays out. And I'll say this on the truth, I forgot this earlier, is that we're gonna set up this idea that there are these, these seven mountains of influence. And if you use me as an example, you, you picture the seven topics across my arms and religion sits as the center and, and Christianity sits as the center on this, this fulcrum, this, this hinge of truth. And the idea is not to say, well, like, well, I'm really left, so what do I need to believe? Or, well, I'm really right, or what do I believe? I'm, I'm really liberal or conservative or Democrat or Republican or whatever the latest cool thing is to be these days. Um, it's, it's not to say that we have to push this way because I'm a business guy and this way because I'm an arts entertainment. It's to say that, that truth at the center is what draws all these things in so that the culture remains balanced and stable and that we pray for that so we can live peaceably among all men. And so with the centerpiece as truth, all these mountains of influence should be held in the balance by this preservative, by this light shining from Christians who are here to glorify Jesus in the process. And we do this because Jesus did it, and we do it because there is gonna be a day, listen, there is gonna be a day when salt and light are no longer necessary. This is our hope. It says this in Revelation 21, one through five. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Bums out the surfers, right? There's no more sea. I see, I see, a, couple, I see a couple shoulder pats. Like people are like, I'm not coming back to this church. <laughs> but it says that there was no more sea. Then I, that being John, saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and he shall, they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more decay. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more crying. We won't have to hold back from what the world is asking for. He says, there'll be no death. There'll be no sorrow, no crying. There should be no more pain. There will be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. We won't need a preservative in heaven anymore because everything will be as it once was, as it should be, and as it will be. We will have no more need for salt and we will have no more need for light. It says in Revelation 21, 23, the city has no need for sun or a moon, which reflects off the sun. It says the city had no need for the sun or no need for the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. The lamb is the light. And so we work for restoration now. Why? As a picture of things to come. 
regardless of where you find yourself in your career, in your life, in your relationships, and in one of these seven mountains of influence, we stand as salt and light until there is no longer a need for salt and light. Amen? All right, let's pray. Jesus, I pray that, that, uh, that you would make that real to us tonight, not for my sake, for your sake. that anything that came from me would be discarded and forgotten, that all that which came from you would sink into our hearts. It would penetrate our hearts. It would challenge us. It would exhort us. It would humble us. It would give us peace. Peace about our calling in our life. Peace about that which you have done. Peace about that which you are doing in and through us. Peace about that which you will do. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to take part in your work now. What an honor that is. Wherever we're called, in whatever mountain we're called into, that you say, be faithful there, and I'll be faithful when I get there. Jesus, you're so good. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit that will enable and empower us to do greater things than you in your public ministry if we but accept the call on our life to be salt and light as we are. So Jesus, I can't wait until there's no need for a preservative, until there's no more death, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying. And that we don't even need light because we'll be with you. And that sets our hope for the future. But we have work to do now, so empower us to do that until we see you again. Jesus, we love you and praise you for your glory. Amen.